You're tuned to WFHB. Volunteer powered, listener supported. Community Radio for South Central Indiana. Good afternoon. Reporting for WFHB, this is Cade Young. And I am Kai Fitzgerald. This is the WFHB Local News for Thursday, April 21st, 2022. Later in the program, we have Civic Conversations, your monthly podcast collaboration between the League of Women Voters of Bloomington and Monroe County and WFHB. Today, our topic is gerrymandering. More in the bottom half of our program. Also coming up in the next half hour, we have Strike Mike, voices from the Indiana Graduate Workers Coalition in light of their recent strike against Indiana University. But first, your State House Roundup. From WFHB, this is the State House Roundup. I'm Cade Young. The 2022 Indiana primary election will take place on Tuesday, May 3rd. To register to vote, you must be a U.S. citizen and at least 18 years old by the time of the next general election. For Monroe County residents, the former Napa Auto Parts building at 302 South Walnut Street was selected as the site for early voting. All residents have the option for early in-person voting until Monday, May 2nd. Early voting hours are 8 a.m. to 6 p.m. on weekdays from April 5th through April 29th. During two Saturdays, April 23rd and April 30th, hours will be 9 a.m. to 4 p.m. For more information on in-person early voting, visit MonroeCountyVoters.us or call Election Central at 812 349 2960. Indiana House District 62 will be a race to walk during this election cycle. Monroe County Commissioner Penny Githens and outgoing Sheriff Brad Swain have announced their candidacy for the Democratic primary. They will face either Dave Hall or Greg Knott, candidates for the Republican primary, in the general election come November. The Democratic and Republican challengers will not face off against an incumbent. As former District 62 representative Jeff Ellington announced last year that he will change his residency to Bloomfield in order to run for the House District 45 seat. According to the Indy Star, the recently passed redistricting maps show that the once reliably red House District 62 will now become more competitive. The new maps exclude Martin, Davies, and Greene counties while gaining Brown County, more of Monroe County, and parts of Jackson County. To learn more about the House District 62 candidates in this year's primary, visit the League of Women Voters Voter Guide at vote411.org ballot. Another election of local interest, the Monroe County Sheriff's Race. Current Sheriff Brad Swain has served two terms in office, and by Indiana law, he is not permitted to run for another term. Five Democratic candidates have put their names in the hat for the primary, including Steve Hale, Ruben Marti, 
Angie Purdy, Joni Stalkup, and Troy Thomas. Nathaniel Williamson stands alone as the only Republican challenger. Whoever wins the primary will determine who will face off in the general election. To watch a community access television services forum between the five Democratic candidates, visit wfhb.org following this broadcast. And that's all for the State House Roundup. For WFHB News, I'm Cade Young. And I'm Kai Fitzgerald. Now it's time for Civic Conversations, your monthly podcast collaboration between the League of Women Voters for Bloomington and Monroe County and WFHB. In today's episode, host Jim Allison speaks with St. Mary's professor, Ranjan Rotig, who is a member of All In for Democracy's Citizens Redistricting Commission. The topic for tonight's show is gerrymandering. We turn to host Jim Allison for more. You're listening to Civic Conversations, a podcast collaboration between the League of Women Voters, Bloomington, Monroe County, and this station, WFHB. I'm Jim Allison, your host, and Becky Hill is our producer. You can find Civic Conversations every month on WFHB at 93.1 and 98.1 FM. Today, we're pleased to welcome Ranjan Rohachi, who was a member of these, who was a member of the Indiana Citizens Redistricting Commission, and is also Associate Professor of Mathematics and Computer Science at St. Mary's College. Ranjan, congratulations on your recent promotion there. Thank you. And thanks very much for being here today. Uh, today, we're going to talk about uh, redistricting and gerrymandering and representative democracy and things like that. And let's start with um, the U.S. Congress. Uh, a U.S. senator from a small state like Wyoming represents many, many fewer people than a U.S. senator from a big state like New York. Uh, but the Congress, uh, the House of Representatives is very different from that. In contrast, every member of the U.S. House of Representatives is supposed to represent the same number of people exactly. And that's one reason we have a national census every 10 years, so we can keep those House districts more or less equal in population. But tell us how that periodic remapping has opened the door to the partisan gerrymandering, which can give a party more than its fair share of the seats in the House of Representatives. How it gives one party's voters more seats per capita than the other party's voters. Sure. How does that, that happen? This is, a, this is a great question, Jim. And I think the, the simple answer is that in 33 states, the, draw, the job of drawing the district lines falls to exactly the people that you wouldn't want in charge of it, which is the state legislature itself. So that means, for example, in Indiana, the General Assembly, the state house and the state senate gets to draw the lines for their political allies or foes who represent Indiana in the US House of Representatives. So that's the case in 33 states. And furthermore, in, in, in 33 states as well, the state legislature has the responsibility for drawing their own lines too. So they're indeed drawing the districts for themselves. And this is you know, a direct and obvious conflict of interest, even in the case where a state is, you know, where the legislature may be evenly split, you still have politicians who are, you know, they might be just trading seats from one party to one party or maybe protecting their own. So even if there are both parties are kind of robustly represented, you still have this conflict of interest where people are drawing lines for themselves or their foes or allies. Okay, now, doesn't this partisan gerrymandering violate the democratic principle of one person, one vote? I'm not convinced that it does. I'm, I'm convinced that we have a bad system with little oversight. 
And we did have some little oversight and that might've been gutted by, the, by some recent Supreme Court decisions. It isn't wrong to say in theory that every eligible voter in the US gets a vote. Now that's not always the case in practice. We know about voter suppression and that's a whole conversation for another time. But I do hear many folks who say we should simply draw districts to give us proportional representation. That's what one person, one vote means and it's the only fair way to do things. And I'm sympathetic to that view, but I don't really agree for two reasons. First, it can be nearly impossible to do so. Think about, say, Republicans in Massachusetts. They're kind of spread out across the state. Um, so it can be really, really difficult and sometimes impossible to draw districts that would reflect their constituency there. But more importantly, you know, voters change their minds, and I think election results should reflect that. I would rather, if possible, have competitive elections, and if a candidate or party's messaging is bad, then they should lose some seats. But the next time, you know, things could swing back in their direction. So, you know, I feel at least then the voters are being heard. If you strive for proportionality at the expense of all else, you will end up, you might end up with a situation like our, potentially our next U.S. House maps. It might very well be the case that the U.S. House um, is fairly proportionally represented in terms of Republicans and Democrats when compared to the U.S. population, but we'll also have a record low number of competitive elections. Democrats will gerrymander New York to try to get more than 75% of the seats there. Um, Republicans will gerrymander Indiana to try to get 77% of the seats here. And just because it all balances out nicely doesn't necessarily mean it's good. We still have non-competitive districts, which can create polarization. So I think the issue here is that I'm not convinced that one person, one vote really can be equated with proportional representation. We do all, in theory, get a vote. I just think we need to change the system and not make proportionality our sole goal. Of course, residents of some states may feel that they are being singled out unfairly by gerrymandering. So why don't you tell us about gerrymandering in Indiana, past and present? Sure. You know, Indiana might not get as much press as Wisconsin or Pennsylvania or North Carolina, but I think it's a great example of gerrymandering. So, you know, in the 2010 elections nationwide, there was a red wave. Uh, Republicans took control of the U.S. House and the Senate. Um, but they also took control of several uh, governorships and state legislatures. Um, and many folks nowadays tend to think of Indiana as a solid Republican state. And that's true maybe now, but it hasn't always been this way, right? Back in 2008, the state voted for Obama. And in the 90s and 2000s, the state house was never more than a 55-45 split for, the, for whatever party was in the majority. And the Dems had the majority most of the time for those two decades. The state Senate was also closer than it is now. And so at least in those two decades, you know, broadly speaking, the numbers were somewhat in line proportionally with the populace. Well, maybe at least more so than they are now. There was definitely some pro-democratic party gerrymandering in the House. But anyway, we had that red wave in 2010. And then, uh, so the Republicans took the House from the Democrats. They had complete control of the redistricting process. And that red wave that hit the country in 2010 um, so once the Republicans took over, then they could, then they had control of the census, uh, not the census, then they had control of redistricting after the census. Um, and so we get what we've seen over the last, uh, you know, 10, 11 years, Democrats, you know, are getting close to only having 10 seats in the state Senate. They've never had more than, I think, 32 or 33 states, uh, seats in the state House since 2012. Okay. Uh, let's focus now on the Indiana Citizens Redistricting Commission. And why don't you tell us about your particular experience as a member of that commission. Tell us how it affected your views, if it did, about redistricting in Indiana and in your own county, too. 
Sure. Well, I had a fantastic experience. So the All In for Democracy Coalition uh, kind of put the Indiana Citizen Redistricting Commission together. The goal was to have a multipartisan coalition of, of folks working in good faith to um, produce maps that are better than the legislatures, to be frank. Um, and I think we did that. We had, um, you know, we had a college student, we had a former mayor, we had um, small business owners, we had community organizers, and everyone really was participating in good faith. And so, you know, we held these public hearings around the state, and they were all virtual due to COVID, to hear what, what Hoosiers wanted in the redistricting process. And there were specific local issues that we heard. So for example, up here in South Bend, people wanted um, to have some input on how South Bend would need to be divided when making state house districts, because it does just based on population size. So there was opinions on kind of where we should and where we shouldn't cut. But then just broadly speaking, um, one of the broad themes we heard was that people want competitive districts where possible. And now in a state like ours, there are plenty of places where we could do that. And there are plenty of places where we can't. Um, and we also had a lot of frustration from people across the political spectrum about our politicians or their politicians kind of not responding to concerns, not holding town halls, and generally kind of being absent. Um, but there was lots of folks participating in good faith. And that kind of really revitalized my hope for, for where we are as a country and where we are politically. I think things can get better. And I certainly hope that they do soon. Okay, well, that was a unique educational experience for you, I'm sure. So let me put you on the spot now. If it were your job, your job to draw Indiana's district election maps, how would you proceed? I would hope that we could get a system like Michigan's. So in 2018, Michigan voters, there was a, there was a public ballot initiative and it passed to create a citizens redistricting commission in Michigan. And you know, there's lots of rules about who can be on it and who can't be on it. They don't want people to kind of be able to come in and subvert the will of the voters and subvert the process for political ends. So there's lots of rules about that. But broadly speaking, you get uh, four Republicans, four Democrats. These are citizens who affiliate with those parties, not, not politicians, not lobbyists. Um, and you get uh, five folks who are unaffiliated with either major party. And you hold a public mapping competition where, where folks from around the state can submit maps for consideration to be the next uh, maps for the U.S. House of Representatives or for the, you know, the state assembly. Um, and then in, in, in picking a winner for each of those categories, you need kind of support across all three constituencies. You need support from some Dems on the group. You need some support from some Republicans on the group. And you need support from some of the unaffiliated folks on the group as well. Um, that's kind of how I think it should be done. It's a messy process, um, as politics should be. Um, and But you get a lot of input from, from the public, right? From the people who should be drawing the maps rather than just from the politicians who should not be drawing their own lines. So why don't we do that here? The biggest barrier is that Indiana doesn't have public ballot initiatives in the same way Michigan does. So it's not feasible really for you or I to start a, to get a ballot initiative and get it on, on everyone's ballot without it going through the legislature. And I'm not sure why I'm not sure we live in a situation where the legislature would kind of willingly cede power, regardless of who's in power, um, whether it's the Democrats or Republicans. And so that kind of seems to be the sticking point. The quickest way, and it gets not easy for us to, to get something like a citizens redistricting commission up and running in Indiana would really be um, a constitutional amendment. But that would take, again, a lot of politicians, uh, and especially the politicians in the majority party, to willingly cede power. Um, now, there is support for this um, from members of the Indiana General Assembly in both parties, uh, but right now, not enough to get such an such a amendment through. 
Okay. Uh, much of the discussion about partisan gerrymandering focuses on the harm it does to political parties, political parties, political parties. But how about the voters? What harm does it do to any voter, really, whatever party the voter might belong to? Well, think about a, a, a presidential election in the state of Indiana. And maybe not, don't think about 2008. Think about 2016 or 2020 or 2024. It is essentially preordained that the Republican candidate will win Indiana in 2024, barring some kind of act of God at this point. So whether you're Republican, whether you're a Democrat, whether you're an independent, what emphasis do you have to go vote? Do you really feel like your vote matters on the presidential level? So the first thing is, if you have, and now of course, a presidential election at the, on the level of Indiana is not something that can be gerrymandered, but you can take that same idea and apply it to our US House of Representatives elections. Up in the second district up here in the north part of the state, um, prior to 2010, we had quite close uh, elections for the second district. Since then, after gerrymandering, that has not been the case. And so from either political party, you get lots of folks who don't feel like their vote's gonna matter because they know what's gonna happen in the election. The other issue is, Broadly speaking, voters want candidates who they can get excited about, but they also want candidates who are working in good faith across the aisle with anyone who wants to work and solve problems for the people. Voters don't want um, extremely radical politicians on either side of the aisle, broadly speaking. Most of the voters don't want that. But when you have a, a district that is gerrymandered where you know which party's candidate is going to win in the general, the only way to unseat the incumbent at that point is to outflank them and be more extreme than them. And so you get this polarization of members of both parties. Um, and so then you have even less of a chance of getting this cooperation or folks willing to work across the aisle to get things done. Rather, you, have, you end up with what many people think lots of elections are like picking the, the, the lesser of two evils um, and no one gets excited. So you have this polarization, you have this disengagement um, and that doesn't really help the average vote. Right. Okay. Now, gerrymandered cases often wind up in courts of law for adjudication. And courts of law often complain about how hard it is for them to spot a genuine gerrymander. Can they learn anything helpful here from statisticians or mathematicians? They absolutely can. And I would invite all of them to sign up for my class next time I teach it on the mathematics of voting. But <laughs> what I really think they can learn is they can learn ways to measure gerrymandering. Part of the difficulty is gerrymandering can be done in many ways, and it can be done to the benefit or detriment of several different groups of people. And so it's impossible to come up with a single metric, a single number that can measure how much a certain district is gerrymandered. When people think of gerrymandering, lots of times they think of districts that are weirdly shaped. And so there, some mathematicians and statisticians have developed uh, ways to measure the weirdness of shapes. Uh, people also can think of... Um, lots of non-competitive elections as maybe indicative of a gerrymander. So there are ways using voting data to kind of quantify non-competitiveness. But really, I think the, the most useful thing, especially in this age of, of lots of computing power is we can have computers generate millions and millions of possible maps based on whatever criteria we want, right? So we want the districts to have this nice shape. We wanna maybe have competitive elections if possible, have the computer generate a millions of maps that are gonna do that. And then look in your, quote unquote, standard map in the middle of all these millions of maps, kind of what's the partisan breakdown, right? Or who, which constituencies does this favor or disfavor? And then you can compare any proposed map to this kind of ensemble of millions of maps 
and do kind of an outlier analysis. Is this proposed map really much of an outlier? Maybe we shouldn't, maybe we shouldn't use it at that point. Is it kind of right in the middle on most of these metrics? Okay, that might be a good map to choose. Okay, now I'm gonna to talk to Professor Ranjan for a second. Professor Ranjan, what exactly did you want your students to learn from your class on the mathematics of voting? Well, I want them to learn, you know, in their college years, what I learned much later in life, which is I want them to learn about structural issues underlying our political systems. This is not only a class on gerrymandering, it's a class on voting theory and apportionment. And I really think one of my students said it best. She wrote that this course has made national elections more interesting to discuss. And I think everyone should take a course like this because the majority of people don't really understand our voting systems. It's understanding our systems that I think is integral to keeping elections transparent and keeping misinformation away. And I think she's absolutely right about that. Um, I want students and I want all voters to know, you know, we are to know how our systems work. We are taught from a young age that we are a democracy and everybody gets their vote voice, uh, everyone gets their vote and everyone's voice matters. And to some degree that's true, but there are also structural ways that when maybe um, parties with bad intentions kind of get in the mix, that they can kind of subvert that um, that ideal that we hold uh, that we hold so close to you know so close about this country. And so I really want students to kind of understand the ways in which our systems work and the ways in which they do. Okay, thank you so much. And to our listening audience, thanks very much for listening to us on Civic Conversations. This is Jim Allison of the League of Women Voters, Bloomington, Monroe County. The League of Women Voters is a nonpartisan grassroots citizen-led organization that has fought since 1920 to improve our government and engage all citizens in the decisions that impact their lives. I hope you can join us next month when we talk to Joe Lee. Joe is a graphic novelist and author. He'll be talking about his new book called Forgiveness, the story of Eva Kaur, survivor of Auschwitz, twin experiments that the Nazis conducted during World War II. Up next, we have Strike Mike, voices from the Indiana Graduate Workers Coalition in light of their recent strike against Indiana University. Today's episode of Strike Mike will feature Michael Martin, professor at the IU Media School and former director of the Black Film Center, who spoke to picketers earlier this week. The audio from this segment was recorded by Jeremy Hogan of the Bloomingtonian. We turn now to that segment. in the media school. And I'm going to reread an iteration of what I shared with you last Thursday in Sample Gate. So bear with me. As a member of the IU Bloomington faculty, in solidarity with you, the Indiana Graduate Workers Coalition, I believe in and support your struggle to constitute a union and to redress the systemic inequities that befall graduate workers. And that this strike, this strike is a critical and necessary first step in what I believe will become a historic campaign against the corporatization of Indiana University. Yeah. Yeah.
protests challenged faculty and staff to mobilize on behalf of legitimate and long-standing grievances, but also, and no less important, to support a project of recovery and renewal from the imperatives, conditionalities, and prerogatives of corporate interests that have come to dominate decision-making at Indiana University. By corporatization, I mean the vertical concentration of authority by an administration and its apparatus in all matters of consequence, programmatic, financial, staffing, rather than under the mandate of the much-touted shared governance, which conceptually and operationally masks the division of labor at IU. This form and exercise of hegemony is evidenced in the relegation of the Bloomington Faculty Council to a largely ineffectual role in such significant affairs of the university. For example, Rather than functioning autonomously, the BFC is presided over by the provost. In my years of teaching at 10 or more institutions of higher learning, I have not witnessed such a compromised governance arrangement that denies a collective faculty independence, unfettered by the interventions of an administration. Is this form of government a matter of concern to us? Yes! yes. Yeah. By corporatization, I mean the process in which executives from the private sector increasingly populate university and college boards of trustees and affect decisions driven by self-serving economic than societal interests and the well-being of staff, students, and faculty? Is this motive in which societal concerns are trumped by economic ones a matter of concern to us? Yeah! By corporatization, I point to the IU Foundation, whose mission to support students and academic programs at IU has become a source of revenue for senior administrators. Consider last year, journalism students at Indiana Daily Student reported that the former president's wife, Laurie McRobbie, received 1.8 million in compensation, and their daughter, 200,000 plus, paid for by IU Foundation funds. Consider, consider too that the board of the foundation was chaired then by the president of IU himself. What are we to make of this since the foundation has yet to publicly deny this claim? Is this appropriation of IU foundation resources a matter of concern to us? Yeah! By corporatization.
violation, I mean serious irregularity, by which the current president of IU was appointed, and the orchestration of that, that appointment by the chair, along with the board of trustees, who together overrode the duly appointed search committee and imposed their candidate for the president. Further compromising the integrity of this process, the board agreed to compensate and reward former President McRobbie $582,000 should the search not yield a new president. Well, it did, President uh, Pamela Whitten. Yet McRobbie was paid the obscene sum of nearly $100,000 per month as a bonus for services unrendered in fall 2021. Is this too the absence of transparency, backroom deals, and unwarranted compensation a matter of concern to us? And no less damning, consider the long-standing two-track system of compensation that privileged senior administrators over staff, graduate workers, and faculty. In the latter case, annual raises for faculty have varied from 0.5 to 1.5 for the past decade, while salaries of some senior administrators at IU exceed those of presidents and provosts at some universities and colleges nationally. With an annual inflation rate of nearly 8%, what can we expect in compensation next year when graduate workers have been promised 5% raises by the administration, rather than a wage that at the very least matches inflation? This divide between administrators and the rest of us is widening and deepening systemic inequalities at IU. This is to say that the structures and process that sustain such inequalities are not random or arbitrary, but rather constitute a deliberate policy decision to suppress wages of staff graduate workers and faculty. A corrective for this unfair and intolerable practice requires study, deliberation, and mobilization across the workforce. Does this matter to you as graduate workers, staff, and faculty at, at, at IU? Because it should. Lastly, how are we not to consider these practices as the corporatization of Indiana University. When they privilege senior administrators who systematically erect structures and policies that deny a meaningful and palpable voice to employees of a university on critical matters such as the appropriate and equitable distribution of university and IU Foundation resources. And with a largely passive and seemingly intimidated Bloomington Faculty Council, unable or unwilling to address these challenges, along with a toothless, 
ineffectual and rudderless office of diversity, equity, and multicultural affairs with neither the mandate nor the will to confront systemic inequities in the workforce, the call to unionize at all levels is of necessity the imperative of our time. Are we in agreement? Do we want transparency in decision-making at IU? Do we want participation and fairness in the allocation of resources? Do we want a union to ensure that the interests and well-being of graduate workers are addressed at IU? standing fast in your rightful demands. And I hope that by your action, together with those of faculty and staff, a mobilization will be possible to redress the inequalities that compromise the mission of Indiana University, tarnish its stature and good name, and betrays its employees. And with that said, in the words of Frederick Douglass, Power, power concedes nothing without demand. Woo!